0: Yes, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Okay, folks. Hello there, good morning, welcome. <coughs> uh, my name's, Al- well, welcome to Austin and San Antonio. I, and I, you're not in San Antonio right now, obviously, but you'll be hearing about San Antonio in a moment, and we do consider ourselves siblings in the big scheme of things. Um, we're practically, it's practically one city between the two of us now anyway. Um, but, um, but, and I'm sure you all have heard, welcome to Austin. You, I hope by now you haven't had your fill, um, because there's a lot still to be here. I just couldn't start a session without saying welcome. Um, and um, I even wear my boots today, which, um, yeah, the pointy ones, I like them. These are my, be- my favorites. Um, and I don't wear them usually, but I do sometimes. Um, Anyway, so um, yeah, we've got some real interesting um, things going on in Austin. Um, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I grew up here, which is pretty unusual for Austin And nowadays. And I remember when I was a kid, every year we would rush to buy the World Almanac to see, and, and the, we would ri- open right up to the city rankings and see where we came in this year. And I remember saying, 45, we beat Peoria. You know, and, and, um, and we'd been like 49 the year before, right? And now we're 10 or something insane like that. So it's a, it, it, you know, it's a really unique time because there is so much change in this city and San Antonio as well. Um, but uh, we definitely have an in, incredible, extraordinary amount of change in this town and um, we feel it every day. And yet our historic homes survive somehow. And I think it's uh, because of great leadership and great ideas. And um, we're going to find out more about those in a moment. Um, our speakers are um, Jane Lewis, who's the executive director of Villa Finale Museums and Gardens, the Nas- which is a property of the National Trust for Historic Preservation in San Antonio. Really, really interesting site. And uh, Rowena Dash, who's the executive director of the Neil Cochran House Museum, which is of the Daughters of the, uh, no, the Colonial Dames, I'm sorry, right. And then, and then I am the Museum Site Coordinator at the Elizabeth Ney Museum, uh, which is a part of the City of Austin Parks and Recreation Department. And so uh, without further ado, why don't I go ahead and let Jane start. We're going to talk for 15 minutes each, um, trying to keep it on schedule as much as possible. Um, And if you have a question that's burning or earnest, feel free to ask. I don't think any of us would have a big problem with that. Um, But there will be, we're keeping it to 15 minutes so we have time for questions at the end. All right, so here you go. You want me to change the screen?
1: Uh, Sure, thank you, Oliver. Well, first of all, I'm gonna apologize if I sound, sound a little stopped up. I slept on my daughter's couch last night and her dog slept on top of me. And um, so I apologize in advance, Um, but I am here from San Antonio, and it's actually only one museum and garden. There's not multiple museums and gardens, and um, You can tell we're museum directors. We're not very technically competent here. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I let
0: you do this. I'm sorry folks: yeah,
1: on, Okay, go. great. <laughs> well, again, um, it's nice to be here this morning, nine o'clock Saturday morning, and we're thrilled that this many of you are here. Uh, I'm first of all, going to tell you a little bit about um, Villa Finale. Does this page down work? Oh. Okay. <laughs> Hold on, they've got a little. S- yes, I, I know, but it's okay. Okay, so you may not know anything about Villa Finale, and since we're talking about historic house museums, I thought it would make sense to tell you a little bit about who uh, who we're representing. Uh, Villa Finale is an Italianate uh, mansion that was originally built between the years of 1876 and finished around 1901. So over about a 25 year period, house was built it started as a very modest little four-room rough limestone house and then with various owners and various ambitions it grew with um, the tower being the last piece of construction uh, into the mansion that you see today it sits on about uh, an acre and a half on the san antonio river it is the only site in texas that's owned by the national trust for historic preservation it's also the newest site uh, we've only been part of the National Trust family since the, the last owner died in 2005. So we are, are very happy to be able to represent the National Trust in San Antonio. It's also home to 20% of the collections in the National Trust holdings, which is kind of amazing. Uh, there are 60,000 pieces nationwide that are held by the National Trust. We have 12,500 in this 6,500-square-foot house, and um, it's, it's really quite amazing. The man who lived there that I'll talk a little bit more about, he, uh, c- he was a collector. I mean, that was what he did, and he filled the house with 12,500 beautiful things. And he lived there by himself, and it didn't say, like the Barnes collection, you know, you have to leave everything exactly the way I have put it, But we did because it's beautiful and it's unique and there's really nothing like it in San Antonio for sure. So this is just an example of some of those beautiful collections. This is another room in the house called the Napoleon Parlor. Of the 12,500 pieces that we have, we have about 900 pieces that have something to do with Napoleon, including a Napoleon death mask, which was his pride and joy. And so you can't see it in this picture, but uh, these are all pieces that have something to do with Napoleon. The library, again, full of, well, we have about 2,000 volumes in there. And uh, many, many collections. I could talk all day about the collections. But I just wanted to give you a, a sampling of what the house looks like to put it in context, we're not very original in our naming of rooms. <laughs> this is the blue sitting room, and um, it, uh, it also has, most of the collection is 18th and 19th century European, uh, but this is some of the Texana that we have. We also have a very nice Texana collection. The green bedroom, and this is some of the heirloom furniture that belonged to the Mathis family, who was the last owner. Um, this particular uh, bedroom suite came from Mississippi and the yellow sitting room and this of course is the the stairway that goes up into the tower which was the last feature that was added so again I just want to give you a smattering of uh, pictures so that you could kind of get an idea of what the house looked like as i mentioned uh, it's in the king william historic district which is on the san antonio river located just south of downtown san antonio so i wanted to put that in context and this is the last owner Uh, his name was walter nold mathis he bought the house in 1967 and in 1967 it was right before the world's fair which was held in san antonio in 1968 and uh, this entire neighborhood was really in horrible shape, horrible condition, and he was quite a trailblazer to even go into this neighborhood and buy this house. In 1967, he purchased this house on an acre and a half of land for $37,500. It's appraised today at about 1.6 million, just the house. So um, it was a pretty good investment by Mr. Mathis. So he died in 2005, he had been in conversations with the National Trust since 1979, he was really a trailblazer in historic preservation in San Antonio and in Texas. He also worked on the Governor's Mansion here in Austin. For his preservation efforts in 2003, the National Trust awarded him the Crown and Shield Award which is the highest recognition that the National Trust gives to an individual for historic preservation efforts. So that was Walter Noel Mathis and uh, his Villa Finale. So the topic today is re-energizing, I think, you know, historic house museums. And, um, you know, Villa Finale is gonna be a little bit different because we're new. You know, we've only been open to the public for seven years. So re-energizing for us is really about inventing because we had to start from scratch to become a noted historic house museum. So the re-energizing for us is really from day one. So I've kind of divided this into different states and they're very short <laughs> because, as I said, we've only been open for seven years. So the former state, which I say is you know from 2010 to 2012, is really the beginnings. We opened to the public the 1st of October 2010, so that wasn't that long ago. But when we opened to the public, the only way you could access the house for tours was to go to a visitor center a quarter mile away, buy a ticket, come back to the house, wait for somebody at the locked front gate to let you in and take you for a tour and then usher you back out. So it wasn't a very welcoming place. In fact, it was known as a mausoleum and then a play off the word Villa Finale, which means last home. A lot of people said, well, it's just a rest home. <laughs> so that was the, the, the initial, you know, perception of Villa Finale, and we only did guided tours and very, very limited uh, programs of any kind, and the identity was really, well, it's Walter's house. You know, in San Antonio, if you would mention Villa Finale, they'd say, what, and you'd say... Walter Mathis' house. Oh, yeah. So that was the identity in the beginning. <clears throat> then the interim state. You know, we, I became the director in um, June of 2012, and, I, you know, my first <laughs> mission was to jazz the place up. So the first thing we did was just open the grounds to the public. I mean, they're beautiful grounds, and they were just sitting there, uh, and nobody was using them. So the first thing we did was just unlock that front gate and let people come in. Then we expanded our tours because a lot of people's schedules didn't fit with our schedule. So we had tours you know, at like 10, 12, two and four or something and a lot of people just couldn't make that work. So now we have self-guided tours in the morning where people can come and go whenever their schedule fits and then if they want a more full uh, guided tour, we still offer those in the afternoon. And then the visitor center, which was a quarter mile away, we moved that to the carriage house in the back of the property so people didn't have to walk a quarter mile to buy a ticket and come for a tour. And so currently, you know, I call it the present state and we've really enhanced our programs and activities. You know, hardly a week goes by now that we don't have some kind of program event or activity at the site. Uh, We have new programs constantly, and we've been open long enough now to develop some annual programs, you know, that we do repeatedly that people now recognize. And we're starting to really get locally supported. People know what Villa Finale is now. But the future state has to be even better. You know, we can't stop. We have to keep moving and growing. And so one of our, our missions is to really be a community resource. We recently published this workbook for junior high kids and it's called the Junior Preservationist Workbook. And it's really about teaching kids you know, to learn about their neighborhoods they live in and how to gain the stories and how to save these important places. And we want to develop the, the Preservation Heritage Program. We're working with the Office of Historic Preservation as well as the National Park Service to really implement more preservation heritage programs for for students. And the the most recent thing we did is the National Trust has 27 sites around the country that they have different forms of relationships with. Some they own and operate, some they simply have a, a partnership with. Well Villa Finale has been owned and operated by the National Trust until recently and we formed a 501c3 this year that went into effect July 1st where now the management is all local so that I think will have a big impact on our ability to to fundraise can't get this to work I'm sorry so here's some ways that I think we have been able to to succeed as well as we have you know, you've heard the old saying, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Well, that's the way I feel about our competitors. You know, which could be other house museums or other museums. Period. And collaborate. We do a lot of collaboration with various entities. This is an example we had uh, in we had in um, a couple years ago. We had, it was called, that was the year that was 1967, celebrating the year that Walter Mathis bought the property. And this represents all of the collaborators that we had at the event. And so we really do use other people to help us bring in a broader audience as well as help fund some of the events. We work very closely with our neighborhood associations. The King William Fair, which takes place during Fiesta, is a big draw in the neighborhood. And then consequently, they come to the house. So we do a lot of work with them. University historic preservation programs. Um, There's a good preservation program at the University of Texas in San Antonio, and their students interact with us quite often. Uh, This is one of the graduate students. Uh, My husband's a teacher. And then we do Easter egg hunts. Quacks is the King William Association Kids, and they use our grounds every year for their Easter egg hunt. So again, it brings people on the property, it engages them with the site. And then Photo September. We just had an event Thursday night, which is a reception for local photographers that participate in Photo September. And then you can expand your audience base with partners. There's one other historic house museum in San Antonio, it's one block down the street. It's owned by the San Antonio Conservation Society and it's called the Steve's Homestead. So a few years ago we started partnering with them and we sell a joint ticket where they can get uh, to enjoy both house museums at a reduced rate. We also do a lot of events with both sites, particularly with kids where we can share both of the grounds and so it works very well to collaborate with, with other cultural institutions. <clears throat> this is another one, uh, the Institute for Classical Architecture and Art has a division uh, or a chapter in San Antonio, and this was a musical soiree and dinner that we had at, um, at, at their, their headquarters. We also do a lot of museum collection loan programs. This is a, a painting by Robert Onderdonk, and we just loaned three of the paintings to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, Uh, the paintings just happened to be in corpus christi during hurricane harvey (laughs) we just got them back yesterday and they're fine we also do uh, work with university presses we're in the process of republishing a book on the artwork of mary bonner which was published 35 years ago by trinity university press and it will be back out at the end of this year and an accompanying exhibit of her artwork from our collection will be at the McNay Museum in February. Book signings. you know we host a lot of book signings on the site as well. And all these things bring people to the property and then they come back. and so this really is an audience builder. And again, we put collections in exhibits off-site to attract people as well. And then Another area is, you know, you say diversity, I say diversify. And I really think you have to diversify to get the audiences that you want. Uh, we do a lot of interest-specific workshops. You know, with 12,500 pieces in our collection, we have a lot of things to work from. So this is a, a silver workshop that we did. We also just did one on quilts. We bring in experts in the field to do the, the workshops. We also do one, this is a tour that we invented uh, a few years ago. It's called Music for Your Eyes. We also have a lot of musical instruments, and we do a special tour where all we do is play the musical instruments. And that, again, brings a lot of people into the site. And even creepy objects can be used. We have this (laughs) creepy uh, collection of clown figures, and um, sometimes people like those. and then we do a lot of age specific programs we do a lot with kids programming and we're wanting to push that into other age groups Uh, these are a group of of students that were on site for one of our programs Uh, we do a composting workshop we everything we do at the site is organic and so we teach them about composting we do something called drawing from experience where we take kids into the house and they with pencils can select an object and then draw it in the house, uh, teaching them about collections. We have an outdoor movie night. We have a beautiful backyard and a nice place on the back of the house to put a big screen, and we're gonna do Night of the Living Dead soon. Wine tastings, of course, that draws a, a nice group. Again, we bring experts in you know, to do these for us. Uh, Billy Kilman's speakeasy. Billy Kilman was one of the owners of Villa Finale and probably the most notorious. When he lived there back during Prohibition, he ran a speakeasy out of the basement while his wife ran a brothel out of the upstairs. <laughs> so we had a speakeasy party, which was a lot of fun, and that was a, you know, a, an older crowd. This is just a picture of the basement. And then ethnic and cultural programs. Uh, We have such a wealth of diversity uh, with ethnic groups in San Antonio, and we bring those on site as well. And then Fiesta is a huge thing in San Antonio, and this was an exhibit we did with a train from one of the Fiesta gowns that we had in one of the Napoleon parlors. We have musical performances in the house for small groups. And then we have what we call discomfort zones, you know, things that you might not necessarily associate with historic house museums. And one was we had a beer festival. But, of course, beer was, you know, what was done along the San Antonio River. That's where all the breweries were. So Serviceros is an organization, and they do homebrew and beer testing, and we had about 300 people show up for this. And then we are developing some signature programs. These are things that draw people repeated. And I'm gonna hurry because I'm running out of time. Uh, We have a music series in the salon. These are students from the University of Texas in San Antonio. Uh, We've developed a lecture series where we have speakers on various topics uh, come four times a year. Uh, Spooktacular, it's a huge Halloween event that we do um, every year. And then members retreat. We have a robust members program that we have developed. And at Fiesta, we have a retreat on the grounds for them. And we even have dignitaries come. Lloyd. And then, of course, Christmas, we have a lot of holiday programs. We do uh, the Christmas carol on the front of the house. Uh, We have craft fairs. And then sustainability is sort of the end result for a lot of this. And we do fundraisers in the form of galas, but we do them with a twist. And the twist is that they're all based on something in the collection. Uh, The first one we did was the opening celebration, and of course that was because of the entire house. The next was Look South, and that was based on Spanish colonial art, uh, which was interpreted through the gala. The next was on Napoleon. We had actors that performed during the gala. And the last one was Moonlight at Villa Finale, where we actually recognized someone in the community with the Walter Mathis Preservation Award. And that also drew a large crowd. And then this Friends of Villa Finale campaign is the one that really is bringing a lot of people to the site and giving us a lot of funds. And then, of course, people, you know, you're never going to be successful without the right people. So we're fortunate that we have a really good advisory council that is becoming a board. We also have a large number of volunteers. Uh, We also do a lot of staff continuing education. You know, every year we go somewhere and we learn more about house museums. And then, of course, volunteer appreciation. And then site stewardship, you know, our, our philosophy is use it or lose it. I mean, we can't, we can't function, we can't survive with that locked front gate. You know, we really have to, to use the site for receptions, family get-togethers, wedding photography, different exhibits, free programs, guest speakers, everything from high tea to earthworms. So we really think that to buck the trend, it's not really bucking a trend, it's creating a trend to be successful. So these are some of the things that we have done at Villa Finale in our short term to be successful. Thank you. I'd like to introduce now Rowena Dash, who is the director of the Neil Cochran House here in Austin.
2: Good morning. I'm gonna um, get out of this, maybe. In slideshow, okay. uh, while I'm setting this up, I'll just say um, uh, thank you very much for coming this morning and getting up early on a Friday morning. Since I live here, I came from you know my house, and my husband commented that this is the longest conference in the history of conferences. So, <laughs> and I said, well, it would feel that way to you because you've been taking care of the nine-year-old and twelve-year-old. Um, so uh, I am the executive director of the Neil Cochran House Museum. Uh, we are about a 15 minute walk away from the museum right now. Uh, it's uh, what located in West Campus. And I'm gonna talk a little bit, so the arrows don't work, is that what you're saying? Page down, does that work? You gotta punch this thing? Oh, I see, okay. Um, maybe, there, okay. Uh, This is an 1887 bird's-eye view of uh, the city of Austin. Um, The Neil Cochran House was uh, built in 1856 by a young couple, Washington and Mary Hill. They were only 30 years old at the time and um, turned out to be a bit of a financial overreach. They ran out of money during the course of construction and never moved in. And actually, the house was never truly completed. In fact, let me go back for a second. Um, The limestone rubble exterior, which you see today, uh, we believe was probably never intended to be seen um, in the mid-1850s. Probably it was intended to be plastered and scored. And so the thing that is actually most recognizable about us, um, these fantastic um, pine columns up against the limestone rubble exterior really um, are the effect of um, poor budgeting. the house was also, because it was completed in 1856, it um, is a relic of the antebellum period in Austin. In 1860, um, almost 40% of the residents of Travis County were enslaved. Um, and that's out of 6,000 people. So it was tiny. There, there were not that many people who lived here, but of those who did, a vast number of them were enslaved. The house was uh, built with slave labor, and it was built with the expectation that enslaved uh, people would be the ones serving the property. And today, we think it's really important to recognize that, recognize the um, labor that went into the building. And actually, it's really fantastic that it was never plastered because the workmanship um, is is quite evident, which is which is neat. Um, but it's also it had. It is our view that had the house been completed after the Civil War, it probably would have looked different. Um, The outbuildings would have been done differently than they were um, based on the expectation of the type of service that would happen there. So back to this map, um, you can see the Capitol here at the center The brand new University of Texas at Austin is up there. It's that big building. That building is no longer standing. It's called Old Main um, and it's where the UT Tower is today. And you can see that um, Austin was built on a grid. Um, They could do that because in 1839 when the city was established, there were four families in a stockade of animals on the banks of the Colorado River. Um, you can kind of compare this in some way, shape and form to the way in which Washington DC was established except Washington DC at least had Alexandria and Georgetown and uh, Austin did not. So there really was nothing here. So they were able to lay out the center of town in a very methodical way um, because there was nothing in the way. We are so you know where we are sitting right now, but the Neil Cochrane House Museum, there's a one large building at the end of a row of four. I should have brought a pointer, so I apologize. That's the Neil Cochrane House Museum. Um, what's fascinating about this map is that the 1873 map of Austin orients that way. So East Austin is open, and you see almost nothing of the hills. Um, What happened was when the University of Texas was established, all that open land on the right-hand side was owned by the university but not developed. So that neighborhood right there to the west um, was publicly available land, and boarding houses started to sprout up there, and businesses and that sort of thing to service the university community. It was the establishment of UT that really started Austin moving west instead of moving east. Why is that relevant? Because we're the ninth and 10th oldest structures still standing in the city of Austin today, and so we have the real opportunity to share all of this early history. And that for us has really been um, the pivot. Um, Just briefly, uh, because the Hills ran out of um, money and never moved in, uh, some real estate speculators purchased the house, they, Leased it to the state of Texas, it served for three years as the first state school for the blind. Um, there was a very progressive governor in the mid 1850s in Austin um, named uh, Marshall Pease, and he w- was responsible for creating both the school for the blind, school for the deaf, anyway. We were the school for the blind first. We were then home to the lieutenant governor uh, during the Civil War. He was very briefly governor when the governor fled to Mexico at the end of the war, and he was governor from this house. So. I'm never going to fight Eric, Erica Herndon for it, but um, we were briefly the governor's mansion. Um, and uh, after that point, we served as a federal war hospital for a year. Then we were a rental for 10 years. So I say we were a rental before it was cool because the entire neighborhood is now full of rentals. And then we had two families of long-standing live in the home. So um, when the... Um, National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in Texas bought the house Uh, in 1958. They um, suddenly had this space. Um, The Cochranes actually offered to leave furnishings and the Colonial Dames at the time said, no thank you. Um, We want the house empty. And so what they did was uh, they stripped the wallpaper off the walls and everything was white and they called on their membership and said, hi, we're opening this museum, and uh, what do you have? And the house was originally furnished basically with objects from members of the Colonial Dames. This probably sounds familiar to some of you from your experiences. Their goal is, um, as I've put it, um, to display a bit of a winter en petite, petit, and... Um, They did that (laughs) for many, many, many decades. We have downstairs, we still do, a French parlor. Um, The dining room uh, is installed with more or less circa 1800 English and Irish furnishings, including a landscape scene of a church um, that looks very much like something you would see constable paint. Um, And then upstairs we had uh, a colonial bedroom, a empire bedroom, and a Victorian bedroom. Well, think this through. <laughs> the house was built in 1856 in Texas. <laughs> what was going on in the colonial period in, in Austin, Texas? Well, A, nothing. You've got to go to San Antonio really to find something that's happening in the actual time period um but beyond so anyway we had there was and it, it it fit into that whole model there was a sewing there was a spinning wheel in the room and then this bed and so this is a, an image of the colonial bedroom and you got a you know you got the bed warmer on the bed and you've got a candlestick and a chamber pot and this bed and uh one of the first things w- that we did i've been the director for uh almost four years and um b- prior to that um I'd actually been on the board during when we reinterpreted, but we, we, when we pulled out this bed, um, it had been given with the restriction that it could never be deaccessioned. Um, it could only go back to the family. They're all dead, and the cousins are dead. I mean, th- there was no, we spent six months trying to track down anybody we could give this bed to. We couldn't, and it turned out the bed was a 1950s reproduction colonial bed, <laughs> <laughs> so. We felt like we'd done our due diligence and we finally were able to um, deaccession the bed. Um, So it was, the house opened in 1962 and into the early 2000s local members of the NSCDA in Texas um, were running school tours. We actually, the first thing that they did, that really began to open the museum up was collaborate with AISD and some really fantastic fourth grade school curriculum. And for a number of years, we had uh, a really robust tour system, but that was about it. Um, and we were seeing about 1,000 you know, a, a to 1,500 people a year. That remained the case um, after the professionalization of staff, in, which happened in 2005. Um, So um, in 2010, we went through a major restoration. Um, Our neighborhood has changed very dramatically, and we were experiencing differential movement um, created by the many heavy trucks um, that were rolling up and down the streets relative to construction as well as the massive dynamiting of the limestone bedrock in our area. Uh, (coughs) The house had to be completely emptied of its furnishings. And at the same time, uh, we received a major gift from members of the Cochran family of objects that we knew to have been used in the home during the time that they lived there. And so it gave us this, oppor- this wonderful opportunity moment that the house was empty. Um, we didn't have to put things back the way that they had been there before. Um, so goodbye to the colonial bedroom. Um we were able to uh, install a full cochrane space upstairs uh, that takes them from 1895 into the teens Um, we uh, also were able to install an 1855 bedroom so in other words at that time that the hills moved in what would it have been like well they never moved in had they moved in what would it have been like and then um, the colonial dames had had a library space which eh. Um, So we got rid of that and um, turned it into an interpretive gallery. Um, We also, just subsequent to the change in um, interpretive focus, um, had a major changeover in staff. And um, my background is in art history um, and uh, curatorial work. And so I've had the ability to come in and... Do some really interesting things with our collection. It's just the previous director was excellent and did many excellent things, but her skill set was different. And so this was kind of an, an opportunity to pivot. Um, and we today have a really strong programming director who has a background in science and technology as well as the arts and no museum experience before being at the Neil Cochran House Museum. And so we have, between the two of us, the ability to kind of think very differently about what we do. Um, Oh, also, so that that bottom image, which is really quite terrible, is our downstairs meeting space, which the Dames added on in the 1970s, so it's a modern space. And we've turned that space also into um, interpretive gallery space. Um, The biggest question that I feel like we have to answer with regularity is... If you're a historic house museum, you're unlikely to change your in, your interpretive spaces very frequently. It's expensive. You run the risk of damaging the objects. And frankly, how many of us have massive storage that allows us to keep things that we don't have on view? Um, so why would you go more than once? And I um, was talking to somebody last night whose comment was, you know, heritage travel isn't going to do it. Uh, we're seeing declining attendance. So. If you're going to be relevant, if you're going to actually be able to make your budget and you're going to be able to show that you're relevant by having attendance, you've got to be bringing in your locals. How do you do that in a historic house museum where you don't change the stuff? Well, we've focused on um, having rotating exhibits um, that we are able to bring people in to see something new and different. Um, over the past three years, we've quadrupled our attendance. Um, it was, I mean, 6,000 It's not where we want to be, but we're getting a whole lot closer than we were when we were at 1,500. <coughs> um, we um, have family programming that we've instituted. That's the first Sunday of every month. We're now in season four, I think it is, and um, it's it's a snowball effect as we gain visibility and more people hear about us, more people come, more people come more frequently. One of the things we do with our family programming is every month we do a scavenger hunt through the house and every month the scavenger hunt changes. And so even if you've, you know, were here last month, it gives people a reason to go in and rediscover those spaces and find something else in them. So in other words, you do not just looking at the 1855 bedroom and say, okay, I've seen it, half tester, big clock, and, you know, I'm done. I don't ever need to come back here again. Well, you're looking for something else the next month. Um, we uh, have had a real visibility problem because we were open in 1962. Either people just know about us but don't care, um, don't know who we are. We actually, our T-shirt that we sell at the museum has the facade of the museum, and at the bottom of it says, not a frat house. Um, (laughs) Because everything in our neighborhood is either a frat house or a law firm. And so not a law firm didn't sound as amusing to me as not a frat house. Um, But, um, so people don't know what we are. Um, We have seemed forbidding. Um, we're opening up our grounds, and we see a whole lot more people using our grounds. We've just brought in a food truck who's on site permanently, and that's that makes us feel more open and more accessible. Um, we've started collaborating with the Bullock and uh, the Friends of the Governor's Mansion. Oh, I'm, I'm out of time. Um, but this is my last slide. Um, and. Uh, And that has leveraged our name out there with their audiences, um, and they are entities who have such great respect in the community that, um, you know, we're cool by association, I say. Um, And uh, we've also become a site for um, the West Austin Studio Tour. It was our second year participating in that. We saw a thousand people come through over two weekends just for that. And it's a completely different audience. And so it allows us to be a resource for our community and give artists a space to be. And it also, everybody who walks onto the property is going to learn something, and so we consider it totally mission appropriate. Um, Our programming initiatives, they're having a huge spillover effect. we, I just looked at our budget yesterday and um, our venue rentals program this summer is has done something like 400 percent of anything it's ever done in the summer and that's because we normally have nobody there in the summertime but we're becoming known and um, we're you know respected for what we do um, we're seeing increased numbers of community donors and an increased amount of individual giving. Again, I think we now have a proven track record over several years that what we're doing is valuable, and so we're starting to see that support come in. Um, and increased visitorship and an increasing sense of relevance to the Austin community. Um, there's a study that the Summerlee Foundation did that if, if you haven't seen it, um, Google it. Um, and one of the things it says in there is, uh, If you close your doors tomorrow, who would care? And three years ago, we didn't have a good answer to that. And today, we do. And so to me, that's what we're doing right. Um, But I'm out of time, so I'm going to turn it to Oliver. Get
3: out of it. Oh, that's good, oh, yeah. Did that work? No. Come
0: on. This is a borrowed computer from the staff. There players. we go.
2: Did you get it? Your presentation one, right?
0: Yes, presentation one,
2: right? That's what I was trying to open. Okay, there we go.
3: Yeah, there we go. Super. <laughs>
0: Yeah, sorry about that, and and I was at another session and there was some technical stuff, and I was like, we're not gonna have technical problems at our session. It's not well, this could be it's a problem.
2: It's not
0: gonna let you. It's, it's the enable content. Yeah. Oh, do we have a tech guy? Oh, super, he heard the dinging. Okay, thank you. Thank you guys very much. Well, my plans for being technologically sound, just obviously. But we managed, right? We're on. Um, so again, um, I, oh, and let's all give the sound guy a big round of applause. Yay! <laughs> thank you, man. I, can, I know you can hear us. Um, also, uh, uh, I want to say um, that I, I have not been to Villa Finale, and I've always wanted to. And I have had the pleasure to be at Rowena's place. And, uh, and Elizabeth, you were there the other day. And we can both attest, I think, that the interpretation is really impressive, that, that um, Amanda does a great job. So, I, Andrea, I'm sorry, does a great job. So, um, it was really impressive. So, I'm the director, well, the museum site coordinator of the Elizabeth Ney Museum. Um, Elizabeth Nay Museum is a very interesting place. Let's see if we can make this one work now. Oh, for goodness sake, where's the... There it went. I don't know how it did either, but anyway. Well, I better better start moving here in a minute because I got a lot of... Anyway, so um, so this is what the Elizabeth Nay Museum looked like when it was built. Uh, the first picture on the left is 1892, and the picture on the right is 1907. Um, and I'll tell you about Elizabeth in a moment, but this is about the site, first of all, the the, it was originally built as a studio for this woman, Elizabeth Ney, who is a remarkable individual. Um, and the first building there was the original iteration of the studio. Then she decided to make it more home-like and build the rest of it on there. Um, let's see here. Let's hope this works. There we go. Great. Okay, yeah. So this is the inside of the studio. Um, she was, and, and that's another view of the outside there. This gives you a sense of what the interior is like. Um, we are on a uh oh gosh, you can't really see that very well, but it's we have we have this beautiful building, which I hope y'all appreciated when you saw it. It is kind of it's a little bit schizophrenic, it's classical and it's neo neoclassical and neo-romanesque, but um it's on a two and a half acre lot in in the heart of central north central Austin around in Hyde Park, if anybody knows where that is. And it's a busy, busy thoroughfare on the north side. That's 45th Street. The other streets are quiet, but 45th Street's very busy, and it faces 44th. There's a creek that runs right through it, um, and that's Waller Creek, which is actually just down the hill from here. It goes around like this and comes down that side of town. All right, let's see. Great. Okay, so Elizabeth, who built the building, she was a truly remarkable individual. That's her on the top left, and obviously both of the ladies are her. Um, she was born in Munster in 1833, she, uh, she was, to try and condense it into, it's impossible, and this is about programming, so I'm going to talk more about programming, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on her history, but she was born in Munster in 1833, she told her parents at the age of 19 she was going to go to Berlin to study sculpture, and they said, that you're not going to Berlin to study sculpture, and uh, she said, well, I'm just going to, she said, if I do not do this, I shall die, and so she went on a hunger strike and nearly died. And the, they called the bishop in and, at, and the bishop had to, they called the bishop to talk her out of it. He visited with her, he came back to the parents, he said, you guys are gonna have to make a deal here because she's serious. And um, so she went to school in Munich. They said, okay, okay, we'll set you up with some friends in Munich, it's a nice, comfortable Catholic, easy to deal with city. Um, and uh, we'll, you'll be safe there, you'll live with friends, and um, not go to school, but you might get some tutoring. Well, she applied to the school in Munich anyway. She applied three times. The first time, they didn't even bother to look at the application. The second time, they said no. And then the third time, they said, okay, provisionally, okay. If it'll give you, you know, we'll give you, a okay. We'll, but only provisionally. And soon after, she became the first woman ever admitted in the Munich uh, school of Art, and she graduated at the top of the class. And the school itself said, you must go to Berlin. And so finally, she made it to Berlin. And she was the first woman enrolled in the sculpture program in Berlin. And she had, it was such a difficult uh, thing. They had to, she had to study anatomy separately from her classmates um, because it would not be suitable. Not only that, she had to study bovine anatomy they gave her a cow to study anatomy on because they couldn't, tr- you know, they did, it would be too offensive to have her looking at human beings um, where the other guys were, look- guys were looking at, you know, not clad humans, okay? So anyway, she, but she killed it at Berlin. I mean, she just wiped, she just really did an amazing job, impressed everybody. She became a very active celebrity almost. She became a celebrity in, in the community in, in Berlin. Um, uh, her first major piece was Schopenhauer, and it, it made a big splash. Um, and one of the reasons she did Schopenhauer was because she figured, when I sculpt this guy, I can tell him, listen, women are a lot more capable than you think. And he indeed wrote to friends saying how much this young woman has impressed him Uh, And he said, maybe if women can put themselves out like men, they can accomplish great things, which is a really complicated statement. But it's also indicative of what an impression she made on Schopenhauer. And she's on his Wikipedia page. They talk about her, as a matter of fact. Um, She became the house sculptor for King Ludwig II of Bavaria, um, who you may or may not know, Neuschwanstein Castle and several others. Um, And that was a sculpture she made of him at... Neuschwanstein, Um, the marble is in fact in Germany. This is the plaster which precedes the marble. She's working on a clay there of William Jennings Bryan, for better or worse, but she's working on the clay there and then the clay becomes a plaster replica. The clay gets replaced and disappeared. I mean, the the clay gets, it it doesn't survive. The plaster replica then becomes the model for the marble. So the Ludwig there preceded the Ludwig that's in in, uh, Bavaria. Anyway, um, so she became, because of her friendship with Ludwig and her friendship with uh, basically revolutionaries who were trying to create a nation in Germany um, and Garibaldi in Italy, um, the Prussian police, secret police, came after her and said, we've got to talk, Elizabeth. And she said, I've got to leave. So she and her husband, she was married, Interesting story there, but she was married. Um, Split and headed to Georgia, uh, to Thomasville, Georgia, of all unlikely places. And then moved around a bit, wound up in Minnesota, living with the first practitioners of Buddhism in America, um, who also were the first publishers of Buddhist texts texts in America, um, which is really interesting. And then wound up in Southeast Texas, which is just normal, right? (laughs) They bought an abandoned plantation in southeast Texas, um, and uh, she raised the child that she had that survived. Um, He said, I'm gone. I'm out of here. I don't have anything to do with art. And He joined Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, and then she said, well, I'll go back to my sculpting career. I knew I would eventually, and I will now, and she got the gig to do Sam and Steve here. So this is Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin that are at the state capitol when you walk in. Sam's on the left, and Steve's on the right and um, that gave her the money to build the property um, and buy the property and build the building and uh, she started her career back up after raising children put her career on hold 59 years old started her career back up and all of her texas work which is copious was made after that time she died at 74 in the building on the second floor Um, but she was a really Truly extraordinary person. She she signed everything Miss Elizabeth Ney because she said I belong to no man because Nay was her maiden name. Her married name was Montgomery. She had nothing to do with that. She wanted to be her own person. Period. Um, she also was involved in the civil rights movement um, because she and her husband opened the schools in the in the property that they had there for the for the families that worked on the properties around them, and also were involved in introducing liberal arts and cultural arts education at what's now Texas A&M Prairie View, which was a historic black university. After she died, her best friend, um, Ms. DeBrell here, bought the building from her husband. Her husband survived her. Um, And she left her sculptures to the University of Texas on the condition that they did not leave the site. And we think that the idea was that she would leave the sculptures to the university on the condition they don't leave the site and then the university would buy the building from her husband and open a college of fine arts there because she was all about fine arts education. She was constantly pressuring UT to open a college of fine arts Um, and she was also a very major impact on young women in the community. And you can draw a direct line from her to Wendy Davis and Ann Richards and Barbara Jordan of people that knew people that knew people. She's one of the very first really seminal figures in in, uh, the women's movement in Texas. And, of course, she died before the, the 19th Amendment passed. But the reason I bring this up is because then the Texas Fine Arts Association was established there in 1911, making it the oldest art museum in the state, Probably. Um, it is the oldest art building in the state, and uh, it had a, a long tenure as a TFAA, which is also important because it was a major fine art um, organizer and advocate in the state for many years. But time took its toll, and uh, let's see, hello, there it is. Time took its toll, and by about 2009, this is what the place looked like. And it was, well, and in fact, by that time it had already undergone one renovation. It was really in terrible shape in the 80s and 70s. And then uh, by 2009, um, the director at the time, who was my predecessor, decided that, well, she had long had this vision of of making a master plan. Uh, And this master plan was looking like this. So this is 45th Street here, the major thoroughfare. and this is, a, it was a very interesting project. And I have a great deal of respect to her for having accomplished this. Um, she intended to return the site to 1907, which was the, when Elizabeth died. And, um, and uh, build a couple of outbuildings for office space and uh, collections and so forth. But that would be replicas of outbuildings that were on the site. And she intended to replace all the landscape all the the trees and brush and everything else that you've seen, which had nice pockets in it, but was rather overgrown and make it all native landscape very interesting decision. it sat well with some people and less so with others um, It was not one of the main things was they had a we had this historic wall on the outside on the forty fourth street side, and part of the plan called for putting a Chicken wire and cedar fence post fence all the way around the property. And that was not a very popular decision with a lot of the neighbors. Um, but she was really effective at bringing the site she she brought lots of federal money through grant writing and so on to the site to, to really restore the building and make uh, the landscape on at least half the property look like this. Um, and it's gorgeous when it looks... When it's, it's wonderful all the time, and it's particularly attractive some of the time. I mean, you know, conventionally attractive when the flowers are really in bloom. Um, uh, so, um, she was very effective at that, but she was not an, a very effective people person, and she was not a program person. And with um, all this attention on the building and her intention of making it kind of amber-fied and bringing it back to 1907, essentially you're saying this is not a part of today. This is not a part of reality. This is another reality here. And so some people felt that the place had been taken away from them because it had been a place where they'd had Easter egg hunts and so forth. But she wouldn't, it was not appropriate to have people having Easter egg hunts in this restored landscape. So that was a problem. Um, we, um, let me see my notes. We, um, so, so what we wound up having was we had a beautiful site, truly a beautiful site, um, a roof that was being rebuilt, um, and God, thank you, Lord, because it still leaks a tiny bit. Um, we had $10,000 a year in program, in money that was, Potentially program money that was originally going to cut flowers, ironically enough, because Elizabeth liked flowers, so um, the previous director felt like the building should have fresh flowers everywhere. That $10,000 proved to be a lot handier being used for other things, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. But the other thing was, it had gone completely off the radar. In 1971, there were 11,000 visitors in Aust- that came to our site in an Austin that had a population of about 200,000 people. So you do the math. By the time I started here, the last year of attendance was 6,000 people in an Austin that was over a million. So basically, it had gone completely forgotten and totally lost. And the few people that were paying attention were largely not very happy with what had been going on there because it turned it into a place that was really an amber site rather than an active site. So, what did we do? I am the, as I said, I'm the museum site coordinator and I was very, basically the staff largely, such as it was, which was very small, Uh, left. Um, The previous director left, her assistant, uh, and sort of right hand left. Um, And one of the docents became my, our very, very uh, respected and admired education curator. That's not the city title, but that's what I call her. And we decided, you know, what would Elizabeth want? Would Elizabeth want something that's really quiet and amber and not... Not at all keeping with her personality. She was a very vigorous, very uh, aggressive, I mean, powerful, very energetic, very shocking, very engaging professional storyteller who is all about uh, advocacy and, and, and inspiring people. What would she want? And we said, and this mission gave us the energy to pivot and really turn this game around. First of all, we changed. Brand, we did some branding because we had virtu- We had really no graphic identity at all. Um, there was one tiny little sign on 45th Street that pointed up the hill to the building. But in fact, and it didn't indicate that this whole back area was ours too, which is on the big major street, right? So, And I've been in the programming business largely as a museum professional. So I was like, we've got to do something with this space. So we made this big, beautiful sign, went through a lot of we're part of Parks and Rec, so it took a lot of work to get it approved. <laughs> but, um, but it did, and it really branded that side of the creek, which was essentially a void at that time, because nobody knew what was going on on that side of the creek. She had planted on the n- south side of the creek, but never on the north side of the creek, so it was basically vacant. Um, and we, So we started the branding and the signage, which really planted us on that f- major thoroughfare. Um, we opened a trail through the landscape. One of the things that was a problem with the landscape was it was completely fenced off. And nobody could, uh, could enjoy it at all. And the neighbors were very upset about that. So we said, okay, look, one of the beautiful things about this landscape is when you get in it, so let's make a trail. And the Neighborhood Association and I teamed up and we got the grant to get this trail put through. And that was like the final, okay, the Neighborhood Association trusts us now. We had basically pressed the reset button on that relationship. Um, and that was a tough one. I've got a lot of stories I'd love to share. Turns out one of the biggest, uh, one of the, this is Dorothy Richter. Dear Dorothy is like 95 now. She was the loudest, one of two of the loudest critics. She was my dad's second cousin. <laughs> and we didn't even know it. And I was like, I, I knew it, but she didn't know me. So I was like, well, Ms. Richter, guess, you remember. George Franklin? That's my dad. And she's like, no, I don't know, George. Well, it's, it's, uh, he was a Gizeki. And she's like, a Gizeki. And I said, yes, and you're Richter. And we're all Germans here. We're all Texas Germans. So, um, and my name's Franklin. But my dad's mom's name was Gizeki. Um, anyway, that worked out really well. Um, but then here's the other thing. So we decided, okay, the only way we're going to get this place on the, on the map is if we do something. And if we do something like Storytelling Hour, nobody's going to come because nobody knows about us anyway. So why bother? That'd be just a waste of time. So we figured, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on three main big events and just blow them out. We're going to do e- put everything we have into three main events. And the first main event was when we reopened. When I came on, we were still in construction. We reopened um, with the first Nay Day. And Nay Day was, uh, was a great event. It was a lot of fun, and we had... Oh, probably 800 people show up, and we advertised it as best we could. We uh, got as much coverage as we could. We relied. It was really our first time out of the shoot, but we were able to get a good crowd, good music, a lot of women on the stage, which was important to us. That building back there is still an abandoned building. It's a storage building. Unfortunately, we, well we're really trying to raise the money to make it something better. Nay Day now is over fifteen hundred people come, and that's four or five years down now. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Um, our second big event is po- the <laughs> polka Apocalypse. <laughs> so we have every year we have the first annual polke apocalypse and um, so this is going to be the next next one's going to be the. F- Fourth first annual poke apocalypse <laughs> and um, it's a ball, and one of the great things about poke apocalypse so we get all kinds of people who play polka, and those people are doing the chicken dance and um, and it's and it's I mean tattoos and later hosen you don't see that every day <laughs> um, and uh, these are two of the gentlemen that have played at our at our event. Brave combo is the main main polka act in town, uh, but they're not even from town we've been getting people from other parts of the state to play. Um, and it was originally designed as a pan-ethnic polka festival because there's so many ethnicities and cultures that use polka. So we were able to bring in groups that were not normally associated with what has become the only way that people thought about it, if they thought about us at all, was that old white lady's place. Um, so we've been working very hard on that because she would have hated that too. The second thing that we did was portraiture in the park and it's become now, it's called who are you anyways? And um, what we do with that is we, uh, because she was such an accomplished portrait artist, what we do with that is we say, we are gonna make all these, um, uh, um, we're gonna reiterate portraiture. How, can we, how many different ways can we come up to make a portrait? M- meaning, yeah, I know, well. No, I know, I know, I'm, I'm gonna hustle. Um, but anyway, it's really, it's great because it's a meta concept thing. The next, then we do, um, so the three ones were Nay day, Portraiture in the Park, and Poke Apocalypse. And then we do some art, some science stuff, like we have the Celebrate Urban Birds, because we have the landscape. We have STEM here with Liz, 3D Liz. Uh, and we do our Nod to the Neighborhood with the Christmas thing. It's not a Christmas thing, it's a holiday thing, it's a wish tree. And it's been a great tradition. People have really dug that. Um, also, I want to point out Nay day, So one of the things that's been really great to do, It has evolved into a celebration of women in the arts, sciences, and civic culture. So, we're bringing all kinds of women's programming in and health screenings and the Girl Scout Robotics Club and um, women trapeze. But also, this you know, one of the things about focusing on women is that we can cover every culture in the world, because obviously women are in all of them, right? So, uh, we had the Hey Lollies, which was a brass band, uh, Las Tesoros de San Antonio, which was a uh, the women were in their seventies, eighties, and nineties. Mariachi singers, and they were absolutely amazing. Jones Family Singers was this great gospel group out of Houston. Riders Against the Storm is a rap group that's fronted by a husband and wife team. Um, and they're pretty strong. They're like um, they're like Tribe Called Quest, but a little harder. That's anyway. They're political. And then Ruby Frey is sort of an alternative band that is all women, and we were very happy to have all that group. Um, Then the next big game changer was, oh, I'll be darned, didn't come through. Well, we had a, okay, so we've started doing uh, contemporary art on the grounds, um, and most of it is done by women. Um, almost all of it's done by women. And we've had some wonderful pieces. The main piece, the picture didn't come through for some reason. It's a big picture, I guess, but it's this wonderful piece that was a very obvious piece, and it made a big impact, and the neighborhood loved it. And then we started doing these other shows, and we've had, right now we have five women represented on the grounds at this moment. Does our session end at 10.15? Okay. Um, And then we have Art Swap. This has been a great event that we have a lot of fun with. We do the Writers in Residency program, um, and then we do the Short Short Fiction Festival, Um, and we have uh, um, drawing in the building, I can't remember the name of it right now, Uh, Drawing Salon. We do other things like, this was brilliant, this was a um, Frontera Fest um, theater piece that they did in our building. And then the last two slides I wanna talk about is getting art on the inside. We did this series called Meet Her Hands with a group called Boss Babes. And this is where I wanna talk about partnerships. Really, all of this was done with partnerships. Every single thing here was done. It's absolutely impossible to do this stuff without partnerships. I have two FTEs on site, and that's me and Lindsay. Um, And so we started this program called Meet Her Hands with this group called Boss Babes. That's a network of young women creatives in Austin. Um, And it's a very active group. And we, so we had these little shows of three, in the, each summer we have three young women artists, m- primarily of color, um, who are having their first museum art show. And it's in this small room in the building that is a reception room, that Elizabeth exa- built as a reception room. And it's been an amazing experience. We're bringing wonderful, creative, really unique people that really would not have really come to this site if it wasn't for this, for this programming. And Thursday night, we had our first opening of our first really serious art show. This is a guy named Danny Younger. Um, So we aren't exclusively doing women. But um, it's about portraiture. It's about 3D. It fits perfectly in the mission and the theme. The takeaways I want to give you are um, what if it both... What it boils down to is we want it to be a hub, not a destination, you know? When you say a destination, we used to say we want to be a destination site. I'm like, I don't want to be a destination site, I want to be the place in the middle. The destination's out there. Um, listen to your gut, it's almost always right. <laughs> if you think it's a good idea, it prob- that's why mine's so big, by the way. <laughs> um, it, uh, if you think it's a good idea, it probably is. If the organization you're working with feels right, it probably is. That said, get an MOU, <laughs> which I, I try to get as often as I can. Uh, you can do it a lot more inexpensively than you think you can, especially when you team up. Experiment with the whole notion of space, place, and history. We want, we want to experiment with vocality and gaze as well. We want people to leave inspired. With collaboration, trust, humility, and honesty, you can accomplish anything. And Humility is important. Give other people credit before you give it to yourself, always. Uh, and Elizabeth would have wanted it that way. Now, so these are just two last moment notes. I wanna say special thanks to, <laughs> I didn't even know Laura was gonna be in the room. My boss, Laura Esparza, my supervisor at the Museums and Cultural Programs Division for letting us go out there and really do crazy things that we've been doing. It's been great. And to Lindsay Barris, who's not here, but Lindsay, it couldn't do it without Lindsay. And having a great team is essential. So, wish I had more time. Um, no. Oh yeah. Well, our visitorship went from six thousand to twenty three thousand in four years. Yeah, so it's worked pretty well. <laughs> okay, questions. We're going to be sitting here for a few minutes anyway, and there's break between the next. There's time. Okay. Well, we've got a minute or two then. Yes. A, I break myself in half, and she does too, so we have four full-time staffers. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and um, Collaboration, it just crazy amount, ima- just really like the Boss <laughs> Babes thing, they bring, we, l- we don't have any volunteers, we have a very hard time getting volunteers. Sure, of course.
2: We're a staff of two as well, and I think um, I made this comment in a panel yesterday afternoon There are a variety of different size organizations here and um, I think those of us who are incredibly small, we have to respect ourselves and our bodies and our abilities and bite off what you can chew. And it does, collaborating helps, but there's still so many hours in the day. And so the way we've done it is established a few really strong programs and then we try to maybe bite off one more thing each year, and it does have a cumulative effect. Um, but you know, Oliver being under Parks and Rec doesn't have to do a ton of fundraising, I assume. Well, I mean, you do some, well, whereas great. we're privately held and get no governmental funding whatsoever. And I have to spend a lot of time, as does Andrea, who works with me on development. And so, you know, we don't have all of the time to spend on programming. But just bite off what you can chew, and then try to establish something that you can build some momentum behind and then that will help you to then maybe take on the one new thing next year.
1: Well, the good thing is, if it's owned by the city, they have a nice umbrella liability policy, I'm sure. So uh, that shouldn't be a problem. Um, You know, our our site's not all that big. It's an acre and a half. But we do partner with, it's the South Texas Gardening Volunteers. And it's a group of people that just love to work on gardens and grounds. And so we open the site to them. They come and they help us. Uh, We have one person that's responsible for the buildings and grounds. So we need volunteers and we need help. And I'm sure there's organizations that might be able to do that.
0: y'all have other questions? I am, I'm so sorry we ran long, but any, you probably do. We're certainly happy to stay here. And if you, have to, if you feel like you want to leave to go to the next session, please feel free. Um, but is there any other questions that want to be aired in overall? And if not, that's totally fine. Thank you all very much for coming. And we're all available to you anytime, I'm sure. So feel free to contact us.